0: Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be a chat about the Salem Witch Trials, a very famous chapter in American colonial history that saw a bunch of people executed after having been accused and then found guilty of witchcraft. Now, you may have heard of these trials before, um, but actually getting into the details of what happened and and also why uh, it happened. Very interesting indeed, because there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of entertaining nonsense in here, you know, people being accused of witchcraft because they had, you know, a large mole and stuff like that, all, all sorts of amusing bits and pieces. But there's a much more serious element to this whole thing, um, born out of the historical and religious realities of 17th century Massachusetts. These witch trials didn't come from nowhere. They were a product of the time and the place in which they occurred and and the you know the the mass hysteria that surrounded them didn't just didn't just appear overnight um sadly these trials tended to go after the the marginalized and the oppressed the the strange and the weird the, the vulnerable people essentially who couldn't really fight back against the system and it's very interesting to explore not just the what but also the why and the how when it comes to things like this and as funny as some of the stories are the whole thing is still just a, a massive miscarriage of justice uh, founded in in, in superstition and, and, and prejudice. So today, we're not just going to talk about the trials themselves, but also how they came to be, uh, the atmosphere from which they emerged and the lasting consequences that they had once they were... Because it was a pretty important moment in colonial American history and did have a, a significant impact on the development of, uh, of of the culture, the politics and the religion of, uh, of, of the region. So, anyway, before we begin... Uh, thanks once again to alert listener Eric Whedon on an absolute roll here, providing the topic last week as well as today. So, cheers, uh, cheers so much, Eric. Good on you, mate, sending in absolute crackers like this. Anyway, let's get to it here. A lot to get across as ever, so let's not muck about any longer. We'll get stuck in with the story of the Salem Witch Trials. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 1692, the year that the Salem Witch Trials began. Actually, no, look, well, no, I said we're, we're going to set the stage here, so let's go, let's go back even further. Um, Salem, right, the, the place where the trials took place, um, It is—it's you can find it even today in the U.S. state of Massachusetts, although at the time of our story um, Massachusetts wasn't a state. Uh, there was no such thing as the U.S. Uh, the colony that would go on to become the state of Massachusetts at the time of this story, uh, the province of Massachusetts Bay, uh, was only a year old. It was only a year old at the time of the trials. It had been founded in 1691, Uh, And the colonial history of this area before that involved much different smaller colonies and provinces and settlements dating all the way back to 1620, the year of the famous voyage of the Mayflower from Plymouth over the Atlantic to, well, to to Plymouth. Um, Let's talk about this this voyage actually uh, briefly here because it's actually very relevant to the story of the Salem Witch Trials as you'll see in due course. So in 1620, around 135 people, known today as the Pilgrims, boarded the Mayflower in Plymouth, England, and they landed in the northern part of Cape Cod Bay in what is today Massachusetts, and there they founded a settlement that they very imaginatively called Plymouth, and it's still there today. Now, the story often told uh, about these Pilgrims, I'm sure American listeners will be very familiar with this version, Uh, These pilgrims were a, a group of English Puritans, and they were leaving England due to religious intolerance. They were intent upon establishing a new settlement in North America where they would be free to live their lives according to their religion. And this is, I mean, in a technical sense, this is true. All of it is true. The Puritans were leaving England due to religious intolerance, but they weren't leaving England because they were the victims Of religious intolerance. No, if anything, it was the complete opposite. They, the Puritans, were the ones who were intolerant. The the Puritans were really, really hardcore Protestants. Um, They believed that the Anglican reforms actually hadn't gone far enough in divorcing England from the excesses of Roman Catholicism. Um, And in addition to a bunch of very boring religious, theological, liturgical, all sorts of other disputes they had, um, uh, Puritans also on a sort of more social cultural level, they hated stuff like singing and dancing and uh, swearing and playing games and celebrating birthdays. They generally just hated having a good time. Um, and in the grand tradition of Christians everywhere, they also didn't like other people having a good time either. So, uh, as far as they were concerned, far too many people were having far too good a time in England, and so they left. They moved across the Atlantic. They brought their uncompromising religious fervour with them. Um, do not believe it when people say that they were fleeing religious persecution. Absolutely not. Um, they, they left to start a new life in America. Uh, where they could set up a strict, uncompromising, biblical society uh, where everyone would be free to do exactly what they were told by zealous and oppressive Puritan leaders. Um, And just to give you an idea of how oppressive they were, in case I haven't sort of painted enough of a picture here, you know the the so-called war on Christmas these days, right? People attempted to take the religion out of the, uh, the festive period at the end of each year. Well, Puritans in Massachusetts banned the celebration of christmas they called things like exchanging gifts satanic and a sacrilege so these these are these are christians really really hardcore christians banning christmas hundreds of years before we of the woke lefty mob came for you know jolly old saint nick anyway the reason I mention all of this is because it's very important when setting the scene for these witch trials. The severe religious authoritarianism that the Puritans brought with them to what become Massachusetts this is this is what established the social, the the cultural, and religious atmosphere from which the trials emerged. So that's the vibe of colonial Massachusetts: strict Puritanism, religious intolerance, entrenched Christian zealotry. Sounds like a lot of fun. And look, in fairness. This sort of thing wasn't isolated to Massachusetts. I mean, you know, seeing as we're talking about witch trials, it's worth mentioning that for hundreds of years, Christian zealots across Europe had been hunting down all sorts of people that they considered to be witches and just murdering them. You can hear about one such instance in episode 123 the Lancaster witch trials get across it but there are countless others tens of thousands of people mostly women uh, were executed for witchcraft in in the late medieval and and early modern periods I mean if anything Salem was a bit late to the witch hunting party but I'll tell you this once they uh, once they got there they did not muck around they got properly stuck in like I can tell you anyway Salem right Small town to the north of Boston back then. It's still there today. Today it's sort of it's sort of been swallowed up by greater Boston these days. Uh, but uh, it wasn't actually in Salem itself uh, that all this trouble kicked off. Uh, it was actually a little bit to the north of Salem. So it's confusing. There were two Salems back then. There was Salem Town, which is what is today Salem, and there was Salem Village, a few kilometres to the northwest. Um, today, it's called Danvers, uh, and and that was the epicenter of this whole ordeal. What was known back then as Salem Village. So, let's get into the story of the trials here. We're going to zoom right in on Salem Village uh, and, and talk about how, the, how how the whole thing began. Salem Village was a small farming settlement. Uh, it had been around since 1636, and by all accounts, people the people that lived there just just really just did not get along at all, right? Um The population of the village loved to fight and argue, disputes about all sorts of stuff, constantly going round and round, uh, grazing rights, property lines, anything basically the villagers could bicker about. They would. They would hold grudges. There are all sorts of feuds between different families. And uh, some of the villagers, uh, you know, they had allegiances to different Industries. There were some that had strong ties to Salem Town, the maritime industry there. Others were farmers, much more concerned with agriculture. There were people that intergenerational conflict had been passed down from, from you know, parent to child. And it was just a whole big mess. Long story short, no one got along. And Salem Village had a reputation throughout the entire region as being quarrelsome uh, and then, in the 1670s, uh, the village decided that they wanted to establish their own church there in Salem Village, rather than have to trek all the way to Salem Town. Um, and it was this this decision to bring a church to Salem Village that uh, that sort of led uh, to the domino effect that would ultimately result in the um, in the Salem Witch Trials. They hired a, su- a succession of ministers, but none of them lasted very long. They either didn't like having to deal with all these argumentative villages or they didn't get paid properly or both and so they just left uh there was one bloke george burrows he didn't even make it three years as the minister remember his name by the way because um he's going to be back in the story later anyway in 1689 uh the the village had to hire a new minister they hired a bloke named samuel paris and it's with him right that the trouble really begins paris was a proper Dyed in the wall puritan like i've been talking about not only did he do a Terrible job of resolving disputes within, w- between people in the village. He also went out of his way to, to really enforce his Puritan beliefs on everyone who lived there, punishing people for, for minor infractions against the church. These punishments usually involve public humiliation, never a good way to get people to like you. Um and on top of that he just doesn't seem to have been a very good minister. His sermons weren't popular or well received. He uh, he put even more people offside by coming off as uncompromising and greedy. Paris was really just not a very well-liked bloke at all. So much so that there was talk amongst the villagers about stopping his ministerial pay or refusing to provide him with firewood for for the winter, maybe you know, again trying to trying to force him out like these uh, like what had happened with these other other ministers. Um and Paris responded to this by filling his sermons with talk of how there was a satanic conspiracy against him as the minister and how all the fighting and the bickering in the village was the work of the devil. Now, it wasn't, obviously. I mean, quite aside from the fact that the devil doesn't exist, uh, Sailing Village was just a very quarrelsome place, as I've said. Um, But there is another reason, much more tangible reason, that things were were sort of getting worse when it came to all the bickering and arguing in in Salem Village. As we move into the 1690s, very, very simple reason here, war. The Nine Years' War had spread from Europe to North America, and the English and French were, as they love to do, furiously fighting each other. They were fighting throughout places like what are now um, New York State, Quebec, Nova Scotia, uh, Maine. And this war, the conflict and the fighting uh, led to refugees, of course, many of whom fled into Massachusetts and specifically into Salem and to Salem Village. And these new arrivals disrupted the social order of the, of the village. They weren't particularly welcome as newcomers. They, they stretched the village's resources in trying to feed them. And all of this, of course, caused even more bickering and more tension. So you've got refugees fleeing war. You've got a rubbish minister who no one who no one likes, who's trying to set up this you know this tale about a, a satanic conspiracy. And this is all against the backdrop of, of of a town that just hasn't got along for the people living there haven't got along for decades. So. No one's having a good time in Salem Village as we get to 1692, and things are about to get a lot worse uh, as as we get, of course, closer and closer to uh, to the Salem Witch Trials. In January 1692, Paris's nine-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, and his 11-year-old niece, Abigail Williams, started to have strange fits they would scream and babble they would make strange noises and throw things around crawl around on the floor or under furniture they could contort themselves into twisted positions and addition uh, to in addition to the, the behavior brought on by these fits the girls also said that they had headaches and that they felt like they were being pinched and, and pricked with pins and uh, a doctor was called in to examine the poor girls and, and, and determine what was going on with them And his diagnosis, can I tell you, was most concerning, because he concluded that the girls had been beset by that most loathsome affliction, bewitchment, and ensorcellation. And what's worse, this seemed to be contagious, because before long, other young girls also began to show the same symptoms. Now, you can imagine how this was received amongst the, uh, the you know, the strict Puritans of uh, of the village here, especially when they've got their minister going around trying to kick up a, a fuss about a satanic conspiracy here. Uh, this is, I mean, the already fractious atmosphere of the town was made a lot worse by these young girls having these fits. And much of the population was was convinced immediately that it was indeed the work of evil, supernatural agents working on behalf of the devil. And so... In February 1692, arrest warrants were issued against three women accused of being witches, Sarah Osborne, Sarah Good, and Tituba. Now, there's no doubt whatsoever that witch trials were always an inherently sexist exercise. Of all the people that we have on record as being executed for witchcraft across the couple of hundred years it was fashionable to do so, almost 80% of them were women. And in fact, Puritan beliefs strongly held that women were immensely more susceptible to corruption from supernatural forces of evil, with devils and demons and spirits and what have you, constantly looking for ways to tempt them from the path of righteousness. I'm not sure why the demons and whatever else didn't come for didn't come after the men quite as hard, but the prevailing wisdom was that it was women seen as weak-minded and easily led astray into wanton wickedness. It was women that were the primary targets of, of, of demons, devils, and all the rest of them. But in so many cases, including this one, it wasn't just women that were targeted. It was women who were also marginalized in other ways. Case in point, Sarah Osborne was el- elderly and impoverished. Sarah Good was homeless, and to Tuba, was a slave owned by Paris himself. Osborne didn't go to church much. She wasn't liked by the rest of the village. Good was so... She was looked down on for being destitute and homeless, and Chituba was a slave from the West Indies and never had a chance in hell. The three women were locked up and left to defend themselves on their own in the face of accusations of witchcraft against these young girls having these fits. They were all interrogated at length by local magistrates. And we'll come to what those interrogations looked like in in just a second. But as we move into March 1692, more accusations and more arrests were made as more and more people came forward with complaints of having been wronged by so-called witches. Three more women and one young girl faced accusations of witchcraft. And, and, and things really escalated with these accusations. Two of these women, right, Rebecca Nurse and Martha Corey, these were women in good standing with the community. They weren't marginalised outcasts like some of the others. They went to church. And, I mean, if they could be witches, who else might be? How many other black-hearted people had sold their souls and were now in league with the with the wicked and the unholy? I mean, the real reason here was that Rebecca Nurse and Martha Corey, like basically everyone else in Salem Village, had, had other villagers with a big chip on their shoulder against them, had grudges or feuds that had been going on for years. And it's very likely that, that Nurse and Corey were thrown under the bus by villagers who just didn't like them very much and wanted them to suffer. Um, Also, as as something of a side note, I said before that a young girl was accused of witchcraft along with these people, and I I meant it when I said young as well. Uh, Dorothy Good is only four years old. She's the daughter of Sarah Good, one of the other accused women. And this four-year-old, let me tell you, collapsed. Under the holy wrath of the righteous interrogation done unto her by the worthy magistrates, look at them, unwavering in their inquisition into the foul iniquity of this four-year-old. The fact that little Dorothy went to pieces after being bullied by grown men was taken as a sure sign of her guilt and the guilt of her poor old mum, Sarah, as well. And this is going to be a recurring theme as we get under get get further and further into what this justice system looked like. Anyway, more women were accused, more women were arrested, more women were interrogated and and some men too as we move into April. And while of course all of the accusations were to do with witchcraft and 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 what have you, so many of these accusations were motivated by as I say grudges and feuds and Disputes and disagreements, and look—we're look, not going to go into all of them. Over two hundred people were arrested in all, and they all had to go through this terrible ordeal of, of questioning and examination. And I don't mean the—I don't mean examination in the legal sense either. I, I mean in the literal, physical sense. Um, let's get into what this whole process involved, right? If you're accused of being a witch, and the accusation was seen to have any merit whatsoever, and this was not a very high bar to clear. Uh, you'd be arrested and you'd be brought in for questioning. And, I mean, I say you didn't really need much of an accusation to be for, for this to happen to you, and, and this was particularly the case when these accusations were levelled against marginalised women, as I've said, or anyone who was an, was an outsider and seen as a bit weird or strange or didn't fit into the Puritan orthodoxy that, that governed this, the people living in this area at this time. And, um, look, I've been a bit generous, really, when I've described the next step uh, as being questioning or interrogation because really what happened next was you had a bunch of magistrates all come in and bully you into confession into making a confession and uh, with a confession great you could be charged with witchcraft indicted go to trial um, but otherwise the magistrates would need to find enough other evidence to support charges and get you indicted and you might be thinking well what kind of evidence um, things like this is not a joke things like having Strange medicine or ointment or potions in your house or books on things like astrology or fortune telling or even having just dolls known as poppets, which were said to be the material components needed for witches to work their vile hexes and incantations. So if you've got, I don't know, a tub of Vicks vapor rub, you've got last week's horoscopes and a, and a cabbage patch doll at home, you're a witch. It's as simple as that. But it gets better. Well, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. It gets a lot worse, really, I should say. I talked about examination. Women would be stripped off and physically examined. Their bodies would be searched for one thing in particular. If you were unlucky enough to have a mole or another similar blemish somewhere in your body, that was seen as a sure sign that you were a witch. Absolutely incontrovertible evidence. Why? Because it was believed that that was where, and can I tell you, you are not prepared for the end of this sentence. It was believed that that was where, are you ready? That was where the devil had drunk your blood from in exchange for your new powers of spellcraft and ensorcelation, This is not a joke. This is an actual factual piece of evidence used by witch hunters to prove incontestably that someone was a witch. Called a witch's teat, right? It could be anything from a mole to a skin tag to, to an extra nipple. Witch hunters claim that, that not only the devil would come and feed at this teat, but also imps and demons and cambions and witches familiars. I mean, bloody hell, it sounds like these poor witches are getting sucked dry. It's terrible. Anyway, if if sufficient evidence were amassed to send you to trial, be it through a confession or the stuff you had at home or the fact that, you know, you had a small mole somewhere on your body, you would be indicted and you'd be sent off for your day in court. And we'll come to the actual trials in a minute. Because I want to talk more about the lead up to them um, and, and I want to focus on what happened to some of these specific women who were targeted by accusations of witchcraft and some of the consequences uh, of those accusations. And specifically, I want to talk about Tatuba right? uh, and what happened to her during the questioning and the investigation process. Tituba actually offered a full and very enthusiastic confession when she was questioned. She said that she was willingly in league with the the foul and otherworldly forces of evil. She said that her goal was to aid Satan in bringing down the Puritans. Uh, She said the devil had approached her and possessed her and that she had cavorted with malevolent creatures of the spirit world in satanic rituals. And what's more, she openly claimed, and this is the really sensational part, she openly claimed that plenty more people in Salem and beyond were all in the service of Satan. All of them hellbent, quite literally, on the destruction of Puritan rule in Massachusetts. She specifically named Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good as fellow witches. I mean, come on, mate, no one likes a snitch. But Tertuba's testimony and confession sent off massive shockwaves, not just throughout Salem, but throughout Massachusetts more broadly. The Salem witch trials are often examined as a famous case of mass hysteria, and Tituba's confession was a huge catalyst for the panic and the unrest that served as a backdrop for the trials. I said how hundreds of people were, were, were all arrested. After hearing Tituba claim that there were witches hidden everywhere, all in service of their dark overlord, Satan, these accusations spread like wildfire, as panic and hysteria set in. And in addition to that, as we've already sort of touched upon here, there were plenty of people who very opportunistically took advantage of the hysteria to level accusations against old foes, people with whom they had been bickering and feuding for years as a way to just get them out of the picture because the bar was so low in order for someone to be, you know, arrested and, and put on trial as a witch. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So by the time that we get to the end of May 1692, so, so many people have been arrested and questioned for witchcraft. Some of them have even confessed and named others as their accomplices. Uh, others name, name, name names in order to try to save their own skins. I mean, everyone's a bloody snitch here. Um, but more and more arrests took place, and it really didn't take much of an accusation, as I say, for people to be arrested. And this is why I'm harping on about the strict Puritanism of the of, of the region during this period. If you wavered from orthodoxy, if you did or said anything that fell outside the oppressive moral code that Puritan society enforced, you're an easy target. For accusations of 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 witchcraft. And you know, if you had any minor indiscretions in your past that people could dig up and use to base an accusation on, you were toast mate. It's not up for debate that many of these accusations weren't made because the people involved actually thought someone was a witch, but instead because of all the bickering and fighting and quarrelling that the people of Salem Village just love to get stuck into. And when, when you think about it, it, it makes sense, right? All those disputes about property boundaries and grazing rights and all that, I mean, it's much easier to get your way when your oppo- opponent in these feuds is locked up, standing accused of vile and satanic witchery, very hard for them to hold their own in an argument against you. So there are so many people who end up being indicted for witchcraft at this time, right? that the governor of the province of Massachusetts by himself, William Phipps, has to step in, and he decides that a special court is needed to try all of these accused people. And so, on the 27th of May, 1692, Phipps established a special court of Oyer and Terminer, which is a fancy name given to a type of court with a grand jury. And this court convened for the first time on the 2nd of June and didn't waste any time at all in getting stuck into those who had been indicted on charges of witchcraft. And the first person put on trial was a woman named Bridget Bishop. And I want to tell you a few things about her trial in particular, because her trial goes a long way in illustrating the general tone and demeanour of these trials in general. Bishop was 60 years old, and uh, she had made the rather foolish error of having a bit too much of a good time throughout her life. Bishop was said to uh, to have a real love of gossip, which sort of, funnily enough, the people saying those things about her sound a bit like gossips themselves. Um, anyway, she also apparently didn't mind a bit of a roll on the hay either. Uh, she liked to wear strange clothing, often all black, uh, hardly the fashion pre- pre- preferred by the Puritans. Uh, she'd been married three times and her current husband was 15 years younger than her. So she didn't have a very good reputation amongst the village. Uh she fell well outside the moral orthodoxy of the Puritans, so she was therefore the perfect target for accusations of witchcraft. She was accused of bewitching five young women, and once her trial began, there was no shortage whatsoever of damning evidence against her that was given by enthusiastic witnesses. And uh let's get uh, let's uh, let's get through some of it now. So firstly, Several people came forward and testified that they had heard Bishop slagging off God and talking about how Satan was her God, how she absolutely bloody loved Satan, mad about him she was apparently, couldn't stand God, loved Satan. Uh, The five girls in question testified that the form of Bishop, not Bishop herself, but a spooky apparition of Bishop, uh these five girls testified that that this form had appeared unto them and done all sorts of nasty things poking and, and pinching and pricking them biting them choking them um and one family testified that they had had an argument with bishop and next thing you know their cat appeared to be bewitched now I don't know what that involves. It is hard to tell what's going on with a cat at the best of times. Don't know how you'd tell when one was bewitched unless it, I don't know, stood up on its hind legs and started wearing a little waistcoat with no pants. But this same family also testified that Bishop had asked them to dye some lace for her and argued that this lace was too small to use on anything other than a poppet. One of those dolls that was used for the working of evil magics, you'll remember. So all sorts of evidence stacking up here that to us now sounds utterly absurd, but the funniest piece of evidence given against Bishop was the claim that the form of Bishop, again, not Bishop herself, right? The form of Bishop had appeared before a woman and torn her coat. And then lo and behold, when Bishop's coat was examined, if you'll believe it, the coat was torn in exactly the same spot as described. Couldn't possibly be the fact that this woman had seen Bishop going about with the rip in her coat. No. The form of Bishop had torn this coat, and then the real world Bishop was wearing a similarly torn coat. She's a witch. Anyway, this should give you an idea of the nature of much of the testimony given at these trials. Even Bishop's own husband came out and said that he'd heard heard her talk about being in league with the devil. I mean, mate, all right, keep talking. I mean, if you want a divorce, just bloody say so. But of course, the most damning piece of evidence against Bishop, uh, the one that really put the nail in her coffin at this trial, was the discovery of a third nipple when she was physically examined. All the other evidence really is moot at this point, because as everyone knows, having a third nipple or a mole means that you suckle the devil at night, apparently. But here's the incredible thing. Here's the even more damning part of this evidence, right? Because at the trial during a second examination to confirm the existence of this nipple, the third nipple was nowhere to be found. So, if anything, that's greater proof that she's a witch because it means that she can use spells and sorceries to hide her witch's teat. And, I mean, look, all of this is amusing to think about in the abstract. You know, it's it's funny to think about these absurd things being brought up at a serious legal trial, but the sobering reality of all of this, all the stuff we're talking about here, this, this entire situation, is that Bishop's life is at risk here. Bishop's very life was at stake because of these ridiculous, baseless superstitions. And when she was indeed found guilty of the witchcraft charges laid against her, Bishop was sentenced to die. And on the 10th of June 1692, she became the first woman ever to be hanged in Massachusetts. So while there are elements of these stories that do you know, do sound quite silly and funny, imagine thinking someone was a witch because of a little mole. There's really nothing silly about it for the people to whom it meant life and death. Anyway, after Bishop's trial, there was a long pause before anyone else was brought in front of the court because there was a big dispute about the use of so-called spectral evidence in her trial. All the all the testimony about the, the form of Bishop, I mentioned before, uh, the form of Bishop appearing, um, all of this was taken as evidence that she was in league with the devil. But not everyone was happy with the idea of the form of someone appearing as being evidence that they were a witch. Because, I mean, could the devil not make the form of anyone appear unto victims and make it seem like they were witches in doing so? Well, said some people, no, the devil can only conjure apparitions of those who are loyal to him. So if someone appeared as a specter, it was a sign of their guilt because you had to have professed loyalty to Satan for him to create an illusion of your image to go and torment people. But then others said, well, no, 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 that's not how it works. He can make anyone he wants to appear as a specter. And so then innocent people could be, I don't know, framed, I guess. Believe it or not, this was an actual factual legal dispute undertaken by those in charge of these trials. The admission of spectral evidence and whether or not Satan could make you appear as a ghost if you weren't a, a, a devout follower of, of, of his. Anyway, so this issue for nearly for nearly three weeks was carefully considered and then... The objections to spectral evidence were duly ignored and the court reconvened and the trials began again. People were out for blood. The mass hysteria that I talked about before hadn't died down. There were people seeing witches everywhere. And in July, five more women were tried and you won't be surprised to learn found guilty and condemned to death, just like Bridget, uh, Bridget Bishop. One of these women was Sarah Good, one of the first three people accused right at the beginning of the whole thing, as you'll remember um and uh the another was Rebecca Nurse the woman who had been informally very good standing with the church and this good standing didn't matter at all when she was accused of witchcraft in fact in nurse's case it's thought that a disagreement with some neighbors about trespassing pigs led people to speak out against her as being a witch and that seemed to be more important to the community than years of her pious church going um nurse was also convicted it's thought because she was 71 years old and had lost some of her hearing so she misheard certain questions asked of her by the court and gave answers that didn't make sense and seemed to paint her as being a witch so the whole thing is just a a complete farce i mean a total miscarriage of justice quite aside from the fact that people are being sentenced to death for being witches casting evil spells which just you know isn't even a real thing Also on top of this, the way that the trials are being held and the way that so-called justice is being dispensed, it's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, after five hangings in July, there were five more in August, including, very notably, George Burroughs. Remember him, the old minister whose Salem Village had stopped paying? His execution is notable for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he was one of the few men executed for witchcraft during these trials. Um and in addition in addition to this, he recited the lord's prayer just before his hanging, which wasn't something that witches were supposed to be able to do. But then again, I mean, who cares about the who cares about any of these made up rules and their internal consistency? Burroughs was convicted on evidence such as the fact that he was very strong. Um, he was able to lift up, a, lift up a musket by putting just a single finger into the barrel and lifting up that way. This, this is not a joke. That's actually one of the pieces of evidence against him. It was said that no man could possibly be that strong without the help of the devil behind him. So that was, I mean, that, that was the end of him. And indeed, in September, there were eight more people who were tried and executed, in, including 72-year-old Martha Corey, someone else we mentioned earlier. Uh, it's thought that she was accused of witchcraft as part of an ongoing feud with another family, the Putnam's. Uh, the Putnams turned out in in droves to testify against her, a formerly respectable member of the community, and she was duly found guilty and executed. And this just goes to show that a lot of these so-called witch trials were politically motivated. They were, they were brought about by people who had personal agendas and vendettas and feuds that they were pushing on others. Uh, and what's really tragic about um, the trial of Martha Corey is that her husband, Giles, right, he came out and defended her staunchly during her trial. And for doing this, he was also accused of being a witch. But when he was tried, his trial was really very interesting indeed because he refused to enter a plea. And so, for the first and only time in American history, he was subjected to something known as pain fort et dur. Now, back in the days of common law courts, right, A trial couldn't proceed until the accused had entered a plea. So if the accused refused to enter a plea and their trial couldn't go ahead, there had to be some way to force them to enter a plea. And this was done by, not to put too fine a point on it, this was done by torture through a method known as pressing. The accused, after having refused to enter their plea, they would be laid down, usually chained to the ground, And they would have a board put across their chest and then heavier and heavier stones would be placed on this board until the accused either gave in and ended a plea or were simply crushed to death, in which case the problem took care of itself. right? And whenever Giles was asked to plead, instead, he just asked for more weight. So I mean he is tough as nails, this bloke. He is eighty-one years of age, and he is spitting in the face of the of the of these of the the people, you know, attempting to dispense their so-called justice. And eventually, the poor bastard was crushed to death. What an ordeal to go through, particularly at his age. And you might think, well, hang on one second. Why didn't he just plead and stand trial? I mean, he knew he was gonna die if he didn't, he was gonna be crushed to death. So why didn't he just stand trial if if you know the likely result is death anyway, he may as well give himself the chance. Well, no. Because he knew that based on how the trials had gone so far, that he would probably, very probably, be found guilty. All the people who were accused of witchcraft made it all the way to the trial. I mean, they, you know, they're all hanged. So he knew that that would probably happen to him as well. But if this did happen to him, if he died as a convicted witch, the government would seize all of his possessions. And that would mean that they wouldn't be inherited by his kids. And so this man chose death by crushing instead because then as he hadn't been convicted of anything when he died his kids would inherit such devotion to his children choosing to die in horrific torturous pain to ensure their financial benefit good on you Giles Corey I mean what a bloke what a way to go anyway By the end of September 1692, 19 people have been executed, plus Giles Corey's death. Uh, And on top of that, I should say as well, the death of, of, of at least five other people, including Sarah Osborne, who died while in custody. 25 people, 25 people died due to hysterical superstition, family grudges, personal feuds, and a total lack of proper judicial process. But here's where it gets really interesting. In early October, Governor William Phipps, you remember him before, he was the one who set up the court in the first place. He returned from fighting in the ongoing war. Oh, yeah, don't don't forget, the war's still going on. Haven't forgotten about that, right? Anyway, he's off fighting the war in Maine. He comes back, right, to Massachusetts. And by all accounts, he was horrified by the brutality of the court that he himself had set up. How could they Go around putting people to death like that on such flimsy evidence. My goodness, these people could be innocent. They're using spectral evidence of all things? Absolutely not. This will not stand. He wrote a stern letter outlining his decision to immediately shut down the special court of Oya and Termina, ceasing the string of witch trials and executions that had dominated the last few months. And you might think, very just, very upstanding. Of this bloke, going against, reversing his original decision once he saw its consequences. Good on you, Governor Phipps, mate, able to admit that you made a mistake. Well, I should probably mention that it was at around this time that Lady Mary Phipps, his wife, had just recently faced accusations of witchcraft herself. What a strange coincidence, as soon as the governor's wife is accused of being a witch, the governor realises the injustice of witch trials and shuts down the court. I'm sure those two facts have nothing to do with each other. In any case, I'm glad to say that the worst of the witch trials was over. In January 1693, Phipps established a new court, the Superior Court of Judicature, Uh, And this had a new process for the trying of those accused of witchcraft. Uh, This court tried 56 defendants, and this time only three were found guilty. And when they were sentenced to death, Governor Phipps actually personally intervened. He pardoned them. So maybe we shouldn't give him too much of a hard time. Because he went further. In May 1693, he pardoned every last person still imprisoned on charges of witchcraft, And it was this that finally brought about a proper end to the Salem witch trials. Even so, as I mentioned, 19 people had been hanged, one had been crushed to death, and at least five had died in prison awaiting trial, all of them victims of the mass hysteria that had taken hold throughout the region with people baying for blood. And it wasn't just humans who suffered, I should mention as well. Um, there was, there's at least one recorded instance of two dogs being killed, uh, as they were also believed to be in the service of Satan as well. So even poor old pooches aren't immune to the ridiculous madness and fervour that, that gripped this place at this time. It was a senseless tragedy from go to woe brought on by religious fanaticism as as well as cruel and callous opportunism from people looking to rid themselves of rivals and long-held grudges. However, I'm happy to say that the Salem Witch Trials did actually end up having something of a positive impact in one area, at least. Because as things calmed down and as people reflected on the horrors of what had happened there was a remarkable backlash against Puritan rule throughout the region. As people, from testifying witnesses to presiding judges, as these people came out and admitted their wrongdoing during the trials, the moral authority of the Puritans was shaken to its very core. They were no longer seen as morally superior, as the guardians and gatekeepers of true virtue— The reputations of the Puritans took a massive beating in the wake of these trials. They were exposed for the zealous, violent, and cruel oppressors that they were, and they paid the price. They lost much of the moral, religious, and most importantly, political authority that they had once enjoyed. In 1702, Massachusetts General Court declared that the witch trials were unlawful and illegitimate, and then in 1711, the descendants of those who were put to death were paid monetary compensation for their loss, with a total of almost £600 paid out. That's around 100,000 US dollars in today's terms. And some of those who were convicted also had their judgments reversed, but not all. For some reason, there were some weird oversights in the legislation that overturned their convictions that meant that some of them didn't actually get exonerated. And then it took over 250 years for Massachusetts to offer official apologies to the victims of the trials, uh, when in 1957, they exonerated six more people in addition to making this apology. And then in 1992, on the 300th anniversary of the trials, all the remaining people who had been convicted but hadn't had their judgments officially overturned were once and for all exonerated with... The exception, strangely, of just one. Believe it or not, it wasn't until last year, 2022, that Elizabeth Johnson, the last person to be convicted as a witch during the trials, was also finally the last to be exonerated. Johnson was one of those pardoned by Governor Phipps in 1693, but it took 329 years for her conviction to be officially overturned. Why? Because, if you believe it, a bunch of teenage school kids in Massachusetts found that Johnson had been overlooked in all the official exonerations. Her name had never been included in any of them. And this bunch of kids campaigned and lobbied to right this historical wrong. And they succeeded. The conviction was overturned and Johnson became the very last so-called witch to have her name cleared once And for all. And that, my friends, is the story of the Salem witch trials. A story that might amuse and entertain, but also represents the horrific consequences of unchecked zealotry and oppression. The people who were singled out and accused at the Salem witch trials were overwhelmingly women who were marginalized, poor, vulnerable, enslaved, or just a bit weird. And while it's funny to think about people being accused of witchcraft because, you know, people s- said they saw them as spirits or because they had a third nipple or whatever, it's still important to remember that these were real people who suffered real death as a result. And this sort of thinking, this, this callous and, and cruel and uncaring disregard for others, for those who are different to us or those that we don't understand or even seek to understand, even if we're not hanging them as witches today, there are still people everywhere who are treated terribly just because of their perceived differences that are seen as unnatural or wrong or, or again, just a bit weird. And this is why we must all stand up to bigotry and do our bit to fight prejudice and oppression wherever we see it, so we never again return to an atmosphere where we kill others for just being a bit different. But that's it. That's all she wrote. Today, sports fans. That is the story of the Salem Witch Trials, and I do hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about something that really has sort of permeated pop culture without without us having a huge amount of understanding as to what went into it. Uh I mean, we all can conceptualise a witch trial. We all know, broadly speaking, what they sort of involve. But learning about the specifics of this situation and and, and the atmosphere, the backdrop to it, uh, from a from a cultural a. a, a political or social a religious context very interesting indeed so I do hope you enjoyed this episode going to close out the show of course with all the boring housekeeping stuff uh kicking things off talking about the the move over to the new servers with megaphone want to thank megaphone once again for bringing us on board um so far so good i've received zero complaints about the transition so things seem to be going very well i do really really appreciate the people who got in touch saying that everything had gone well it's nice to have some uh some some people chime in to to tell me that uh that it's all going smoothly. So thank you to those people and thank you to everyone else who has got in touch in the meantime uh, with other pieces of feedback and of course topic suggestions. It's great to hear from people, net. the contact form is still there if you want to get in touch. Uh, but do let me know how your experience has been and uh, if you're still listening, if you're still a fan of the show and if everything's going smoothly and you're enjoying it, uh, if you wouldn't mind jumping over to iTunes or Spotify and leaving a review, I would very much appreciate that. Uh, there's been a bunch of people; we've got a few thousand reviews now on uh, on Spotify, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm absolutely flattered by how positive they all are. So, thank you so much to everyone who's helping support the show in that way. Um, uh, it's uh, it, it is really a growth period for this for, for this podcast, and I want to thank everyone who is uh, is listening to it. Again, whether you've been here for hundreds of episodes or, or maybe just a handful it's great to have you on board and i do hope you'll continue listening for a long time uh, if you want to support the show even further than just listening to it you can do so in a range of ways there's a merch shop that you can go to halfasistory.net, follow the links to the merch shop hosted by t public uh, and grab yourself some gear over there or you can support the show very directly uh, via patreon patreon.com slash half history and it's there you can sign up and gain access to all sorts of exclusive member only benefits including Merch that is shipped over to you at no extra cost. It's included as part of your Patreon membership if you join at a certain tier and above. I think it's $5 and above, you get merch sent to you. So get stuck in over there if you feel like. But of course, the best way to support the show is just listening, telling your friends, telling your enemies, telling people about about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Certainly a better way to treat your enemies than how we've heard some people do it today in this episode, telling your enemies about a tin pot history podcast to try to get them off your back. It's certainly better than, you know, trying to get them hanged as a witch. Anyway. Closing out the show this week, of course, uh, with another question posed on Reddit. Here, thanks for tuning in this week. See you back here next week for more half history, more nonsense. It'll be good to have you. But until then, uh, this question, or this witch-related question, comes to us from Toad Mountain, who asks: <clears throat> If one wood witch watched a wood watch, and one wood witch wished for one woodwatch watch to be watched, which wood witch would watch which wood watch? and which would which would wish which watch watched